You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to read together verses 1 through verse 15, John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to a very difficult passage of Scripture this morning for us to understand fully. This revelation of your nature and your character is beyond our ability to fully grasp We are thankful that we worship and serve and love a God who is infinitely beyond our comprehension. For any God who could be understood by the minds of finite and fallen men would be no God at all. And so we thank you that you are infinite in your perfections and in your beauty and in your glory and in your nature and character, but that you have revealed enough to us that we might understand who you are and offer appropriate worship to you. So we pray that you would help our time here as we look at these things to be clear and applicable to our lives, that you would give us clarity and understanding the nature of our God and the person of Christ and his relationship to you, our Father, that we may honor the Son, and in so honoring the Son, we may honor the Father as well. We ask your blessing upon our time here to that end, in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever noticed that there is nothing like observing the foibles of somebody else to make you feel really good about yourself and even feel really smart? about yourself. Um, have you ever been in a class and listening to a lecture or a lesson and you think to yourself, I got a question, but I have a sneaking suspicion that although the question seems seems um, smart to me and appropriate at this point, that in asking this, I have the suspicion that this might be a really stupid question. And so you kind of hesitate in asking it and then somebody shoots up their hand and they ask a question that makes every question you've ever asked or thought of asking look stunningly brilliant by comparison. You know who that person is. Every class seems to have one. And it is not like that type of a person is a, is a one-trick pony. Oh, no. No, they seem to have a bottomless well of these uh, brilliant uh, luminosity, luminous gems that they are able to draw out question after question. And every time they raise their hand and ask a question, you feel smarter. 
And every question that they ask seems smarter than the next, and they just go on and on like that. Uh, we had uh, I took my oldest two children to a uh, hunter safety course a couple years back, and there was one kid there who sat in the front row or near the front row. You know the type of person that I'm talking about, always sitting near the front or in the front row. And he would always shoot up his question. I realized after about three questions within the first 30 minutes of the very first class, that this was going to be a very long course. And there were some times when he would ask a question, you weren't quite sure if he was asking a question or trying to step in and teach the class a little bit. And he thought that his questions were brilliant, and they weren't brilliant. Every time he would raise his hand, Shep and I would kind of look at each other and sigh a little bit, and part of me inside would die, and I would just think, oh, if you could just let the guy who gets paid to teach the course teach the course. Sometimes listening to questions like that and comments like that can make us feel really smart and really good about ourselves. And listening to the questions and the comments of the apostles, the disciples, in this passage of John and in this section of John can make us feel really good about ourselves until we realize what I have really done much better than they did in similar circumstances. There are three questions and comments that we are looking at. Um, each question and comment doesn't really seem from our vantage point to sound all of that profound or to sound all of that smart. And it's easy for us in reading these to think, what were you thinking? And there are three of them. Jesus said back in chapter 13 to the disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going away, you cannot come with me, you cannot follow me now, you will follow later, but you're not going to follow me now. And Peter shoots up his hand, yes, Peter, why can I not follow you? I am willing to lay down my life for you. And all God's people say, oh, Peter, no, don't say it, we know what's coming and you can almost, in, in anticipating the question, feel that this is going to be a groaner and that as soon as the words leave his mouth, he's going to wish he had never said them. And then that's followed up by Thomas. Jesus said to them, I'm going to the Father's house. You know the way where I am going. Yes, Thomas. We don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way where you are going. And then Peter, uh, then Philip is the next one in the passage that we just read. Jesus said to them, you have seen the Father. From now on, you know the Father and you have seen the Father. Yes, Philip, show us the Father. Three comments and suggestions which from our vantage point look very silly, very, uh, stupid is the wrong word, uninformed and naive and childish. But then I have to step back and ask myself, would I have fared any better in similar circumstances? They were fearful. They were anxious. They were worried. They had listened to Jesus throughout the course of that evening describe things that they could not have fully understood. If I were despondent and I were fearful, what type of questions would I have asked? To put it another way, what do my prayers sound like when I am fearful and despondent? That's a searching question, isn't it? What do my prayers sound like when I am fearful and despondent? And see, I don't even, I, I have an advantage over the apostles in the sense that I live on this side, we live on this side of the cross, and the resurrection, and the ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. We live on this side of those events. They lived on the other side of those events. And so they had, they had no context in which to put these things together and to really understand some of the things that Jesus was saying to them. I'm convinced that if I were there that evening, I would have been making comments and asking questions that would make everything Peter ever said look brilliant by comparison. Convinced of that. I would have beat Peter to the punch, I would have beat Thomas to the punch, and I would have beat Philip to the punch in asking stupid questions. But each of these questions that they asked is turned by Jesus into an opportunity to teach them something. Each statement and each comment reveals a number of things. It reveals the weakness of their disciples, the weakness of their faith, and the weakness of their understanding. 
Each of these comments and questions reveals the limitations of their understanding. Here they were even in the final hours of the life of the Lord Jesus. And they are with Him after three years of being with Him. And, and we read the conversation that takes place and we are surprised and we say to ourselves, how can you not yet get this? But even at this very late hour, their understanding of these events and their understanding of His teachings were, was still very limited. And of course, we are reminded by their questions and their comments of the slowness that we as children of dust have in picking up spiritual truth. Sometimes we can be very, very thick. And in that sense, we are just like they, they are just like we are. And it also reveals to us the glory of the Savior, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His graciousness that He would condescend and, and tolerate them and put up with them. Is it not, is it not true that every moment that we are not consumed for the same weakness and the same ineptness and the same lack of understanding that it demonstrates God's love and grace toward us as well? So we're in the same boat as the apostles in that sense, or in the, as the disciples in that sense, in that we have a limited understanding and weakness. And their three questions raise three opportunities for Jesus to teach them something. Remember, Jesus, or Philip, uh, no, get it right. There's four guys here I'm trying to remember. Peter's question, statement to Jesus, I would be willing to die for you. I would lay down my life for you. That gave Jesus the opportunity to predict something that would be of tremendous comfort to the disciples in the hours to come. And not only that, but it gave Jesus the opportunity to teach them about why he was going and why they couldn't follow. He was going to the Father's house. He's not just speaking about death, though that is involved, but he is going to the Father's house to prepare a place for them. And he will come again, receive them to himself, and be with them forever. And then Thomas's statement, we don't know where you are going and we don't know the way where you are going, gave Jesus the opportunity to point to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to God, the only truth of God, and the only source for life from God. And then Philip's comment, which we're going to look here, gives Jesus the opportunity to talk to Philip about the, the, um, and Philip saying, show us the Father. It gives Jesus the opportunity to talk to him, teach him about the relationship between the Father and the Son in the triune God. So each of these dumb questions, as it were, and like I say, I say that knowing that I would ask dumber questions than they did, each of these questions, as inadequate as they seem, is an opportunity for Jesus to teach profound truth. And so, in one sense, I think we can be very thankful for the guy in the class who puts up his hand, right? And asks the questions. If the teacher can take advantage of the teachable moment and turn it into a very good teaching opportunity, and that's exactly what Jesus does. So we pick it up in verse 7. We pick it up in verse 7, and verse 7 is connected to verse 6, and I don't want you to miss the connection. In verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now that exclusive statement, which excludes all competitors, all other claims, truth claims, all other uh, religious leaders, all other religious teachers, all other sources of life, and all religions except the one true faith, that claim is either true or false. Now verse 7 is connected to that, and verse 7 is really the rest of Jesus' answer. Verse 7 is, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Why is it true? Why is it that we can say that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life? How do we know that that is true? That is true because, as I said last week, that there are no other ways because Jesus has no other competitors. He has no peers. There's nobody like him. There's nobody else of whom it can be said that if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. Because He is the one and only unique God in human flesh. He is therefore the only way. Only Jesus can say, you have seen Me and you have seen the Father. And since that is true, then He can also say that He is the way to God because He is God. 
He can say that he is the truth of God because he is God. And he can say that he is the life of God because he is God. It is because he is God, because he is unique, and because he is the only begotten Son who has revealed the Father that he can say there is no other way. So that's how verse 7 is connected to verse 6. Now there's an interpretive issue here and something that kind of makes us scratch our heads a little bit. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And that does not sound like something that Jesus would say to his disciples. If you had known me, had they not known him? If you had known me, then you would know my Father also. Did not these men whom Jesus had called to himself and talked for three years about the Father to them, did they not know the Father? In what sense can Jesus say to the disciples that you have really not known me? If you had known me, then you would know the Father as well. How is that true? Did they not know the Father? And did they not know Jesus? In one sense, it is true that they knew Him. Now catch this. In one sense, it is true that they knew Him. They knew Him enough to leave their families, to leave their businesses, to leave their occupations, and to leave their hometowns. At one point, Philip confessed, We have found He of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. We have found the One of whom the entire Old Testament speaks. Philip knew Him that well. They knew Him well enough to confess as Peter did in Matthew 16, We believe that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They knew Him that well. They knew Him well enough to spend three years with Him in preaching and teaching. So how is it that Jesus could say, If you had known Me, you would have known the Father. We might expect Jesus to say that to the Pharisees, but not to these men. But all Jesus is doing is he is pointing out the inadequacy of their understanding even at this point. Did they really, fully, truly understand the depths of who they were speaking to? The depth of his nature and his character and his essence and his person and who he really is? Did they really understand that? They did not have a grasp on that truth. And that is what Jesus is saying. If you had truly known me, then you would know my Father as well. But from now on, from this point forward, you have known him and you have seen him. Verse 7. From this point forward, from now on, you know him and have seen him. And all Jesus is saying is, though you have not up to this point fully understood all of the truth that you can understand about me and about the Father, there is coming a point, and it was so immediate, it was within the next few hours, the next couple days, if you will, there was coming a point that Jesus describes it as even now. From this point forward, you will understand me, and you will know the Father. You have seen the Father. That's what he's saying. And, and that would happen after the death and the crucifixion, crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. After the Spirit of God came, suddenly all of this information that Jesus had told them for three years all of it started to come together as they really began to understand the true nature of who he was and what he came to do. But at this point, they didn't understand that. So that raises for us Philip's question. Philip's question in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Show us the Father and it is enough for us. Now we have to ask two questions about Philip's question. Don't you love people who always answer a question with a question? We have to ask two questions of Philip's question. First, what is it that Philip is asking for? And second, why is Philip asking this question? What is he asking? What, what, what is it that he means by his question? Show us the Father, or his request. Show us the Father. It is enough for us. And why is Philip asking the question? First, the what. I do not believe that what Philip is asking for is a sign in the sense that the unbelieving, hard-hearted, impenitent Pharisees wanted a sign. Do you remember how they were always asking Jesus? Show us a sign. We saw it in chapter 2. Show us a sign for the authority that you do, you have to do these things. 
Uh, They asked him in Matthew chapter 12, Teacher, show us a sign. They always wanted him to dazzle them, to see some miracle. Philip is not in that camp. He's not asking Jesus to, to put on some display of glory to convince him that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He's not asking for a sign because he has a hard heart. Neither is Philip asking for, to see the Father in a bodily form as if Philip believed that Jesus just had to sort of open up the veil of eternity and Philip could look through and see the Father dwelling in a body. He, Philip is an Orthodox Jew and Philip understood that uh, God does not have a body. God is spirit and his essence is spirit. And he understood from the Old Testament that no man can see God and live. But at the same time, Philip understood from the Old Testament that there were times when men and women saw God. Do you remember them? We call them theophanies. They saw, as it were, the angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord, these theophanies, and theophany simply means an appearance of God. These theophanies were appearances of God to Old Testament saints like Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the elders of Israel. I think it's in Exodus chapter 24 when they uh, have they see this massive demonstration of the glory of God. Those are the theophanies. So Philip understands God doesn't have a body, but Philip also understands God can appear to people. And what it is asking for is an Old Testament style theophany. We want to see the Father. Show us the Father. It is almost as if Philip were to say this, since we are the men who have been chosen by you to follow you, We have an intimate relationship with the Messiah of Israel. Can you not show us the Father, reveal to us the glory? Can we not at least have the same benefit as Moses and Abraham and even some of the unbelieving elders of the nation of Israel? Can we not at least see that type of glory? That's what he's asking for. Now why does Philip ask the question or make the request? Some have suggested it's because Philip... Uh, really wanted to know and see God personally for himself. He's not content with second-hand information about the Father, but that Philip really has a desire to know God deeply and to know God personally. Now, we can, we can relate to this desire because this ought to be the hungering desire of every regenerate heart, to know God more fully. Do we not say, as David did in Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I may seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That is the desire of every redeemed person. To look upon God and to behold His glory and His beauty and His majesty, His glory and His holiness. To see all of that. But at the same time, we understand that if God were to do that to us right now, what would happen? It would consume us entirely because we are not fit to behold that with our eyes. But there is a longing to see that, is there not? Maybe that's what Philip was asking. Show us the Father. Some have suggested that Philip is requesting this out of fear. Remember, he is anxious. He is despondent. He is discouraged. And maybe it is as if Philip is saying, if you would just show us the Father, then that would be sufficient. It's one thing to talk to us about the Father's house. It's another thing to see the Father of the house, right? Uh, The words that you have given to us, the descriptions that you have given to us, that's one thing. But we don't want just descriptions of this reality. We want to behold the one who is himself reality. There's a hunger there. And and knowing that if I could see him, all my doubts would vanish. All my fears would be dispelled. All of my anxieties would be quelled. I would be at rest. I could be at peace. To see and to look upon the Father would just answer so many things, would it not? To have 
all of a sudden everything put into perspective and, and Jesus saying, I'm leaving, I'm going away, you cannot come with me, you're staying here, I'm going to the Father. Maybe what Philip was saying is, you know, if you just show us the Father, that'll be sufficient to hold us over until you come back and receive us to yourself. It would give us something to cling to in the interim. Maybe that's what Philip is asking for. That's why he asked the question, but you can notice that his questioner's request are filled with problems. It's problematic. There's a couple problems with it. First of all, the first problem, Philip did not understand something about the nature of Old Testament appearances of God. And maybe you already caught this. You know what is true about all the Old Testament appearances of God? They were, in fact, appearances of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are what we call pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. That's what John means when he says in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, He has expounded, explained, or revealed the Father to us. In other words, nobody has ever looked upon the fullness of God in, un- in His unveiled glory, and nobody has ever laid eyes upon the Father. Why is that? Because it would consume anybody who did look upon the Father. But the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, who is one with the Father, He has revealed the Father to us. And John is describing there all of the Old Testament appearances of, of God. All of them in the Old Testament. They were all the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why John says in John chapter 12, when he describes what Isaiah said about the unbelieving nation of Israel, and then he says, this Isaiah said when he, Isaiah, saw him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom did Isaiah see? High and lifted up, and the, the, the glory of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah came undone and said, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe unto me. Who is it that Isaiah beheld? John says, Isaiah saw Jesus in that vision. Ezekiel chapter 6. Whom did Abraham have lunch with? It is Jesus. Whom did Moses see? The second person. Whom did the elders of Israel see? The second person. Whom did Isaiah see? The son. Whom did Ezekiel see? The son. Jacob. They saw the son. And here's the son standing in the presence of Philip. That's what makes this request so bizarre. Show us the father. Philip, you don't need to see the father. Show us an Old Testament theophany. Philip. Did he not understand that what he was requesting was far inferior to what he had received? Do you catch that? Abraham spent an afternoon with the second person of the Trinity. Philip spent three years. Every time Jesus spoke, Philip heard the words of the Father. Every time Jesus did a miracle, Philip beheld the activity of the Father. Everything he saw in Christ was a revelation of the Father. And he is asking for something that Abraham got to see and that Moses got to see and the elders of Israel got to see. That is far inferior to what he had received over the course of the last three years. Show us the glory. Now, Philip didn't see the manifest glory that they saw. In Christ, it is the Godhead veiled in human flesh. The glory is veiled, but he is dwelling with the same person that they saw in the Old Testament. There's a second problem with Philip's question, and you see it at the end of his request. Show us the Father, and that is sufficient for us. Did you catch the problem? What does that imply? That something was what? insufficient, not sufficient. What is Philip saying or suggesting was insufficient for the disciples? Spending three years with Jesus, hearing His teaching, watching His miracles, 
seeing his nature and his character, spending time with him for three years. And now Philip wants something more. Show us the Father, then it will be enough. Then it will be sufficient for us. Then we will have what we want and what we crave. I have to confess to you that there is something of Philip in every single human heart. This is actually what plagues modern evangelicalism. And we've talked about this in, in weeks past with the, all of the books that purport to tell us about visions of heaven and taking people going to heaven and coming back and seeing that. Do you know why people gobble up those books? Because Scripture is not enough. Do you know why people go from one conference and one convention and one fad to the next and they hop and skip about for whatever, whatever wave is catching modern evangelicalism? You know why they do that? Because something is not enough. People want one spiritual experience after another spiritual experience and they want one speaker. They want to hear something and see something. They want to experience something more, always thinking this will be sufficient for me because they always our craving is always for something more. Even the book, Sarah Young, Jesus Calling. I talked about that months ago. That book, Sarah Young, Jesus Calling, the very introduction, she says, I had the scriptures and I have the Bible, but that was not enough for me. That was insufficient. There's something of Philip that this describes modern evangelicalism. Nothing is ever enough. I can't be satisfied with the revelation that God has given to me in Scripture. I cannot be satisfied with the revelation of Jesus Christ, of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I need something more. And that's what Philip is saying. It is insufficient to live with Christ, to dwell with Christ, to hear His Word, and to give for Him to give me His promises. For Philip, at this moment, the bare Word of Christ was not enough. Show us the Father. That will be sufficient. You speak of the Father's house. Show us the Father. You talk about taking us to be with the Father. Show us the Father. The promises are not enough. The three years with you is not enough. The teaching has not been enough. Show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Let me ask you a question. If you had to choose, you could choose between having the Word of God or having a glorious experience of beholding the glory of God and hearing the audible voice of God from heaven speak to you, which would you choose? Scripture or the glory of God and an audible voice from the Father? Which would you choose? Most of evangelicalism would choose the second. Peter gives us the answer to that question in 2 Peter chapter 1. He was on the mountain and he saw Jesus transfigured in His glory before His very eyes. And he saw that glory and he heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, I beheld that glory, I heard that voice, but we have the more sure word. The word made more sure to us. You ask Peter, choose between the experience of seeing that glory and having this book, and Peter would say, this book wins hands down. No experience can compete with the written word because it is sufficient. And yet, for far too many people, it's not sufficient. It's not enough. And in that way, we are just like Peter. So there is a rebuke here in chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, I have been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. You remember who one of the first disciples to join Jesus was back in chapter 1? It was Philip. Back in chapter 1, verse 45, Philip grabbed Nathanael and said, Come, we have found the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. Philip was there before Peter, before John, before Nathaniel, before Andrew. Philip was one of the first ones to join him. And this is Jesus' way of saying, I've been with you so long. For three years you have known me. You have seen me. And yet you're willing to say that that is not sufficient for you? So he says to him in verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
Now, that is a profound statement, and it is, in fact, a claim to deity, as we're going to see in verses 10 and 11. That is Jesus claiming that to look upon him, to see him, is to look upon the Father, to see the Father. And explain why that is the case and what we don't mean by that, because we can get confused at this point in confusing the persons of the Trinity. This is not the first time that Jesus has made a statement like this. Back in chapter 12, verse 45, he said, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. In chapter 13, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And in chapter 5, which we read earlier, he says the exact same thing in different words, that to look upon him is to look upon the Father. Now, what do we mean by that, and what do we don't mean by that? What we don't mean by that is that to look upon Jesus is to see the Father because Jesus is the Father. That's not what we believe. That's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus did not say, Philip, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father, Because I am the Father, and the Father and I are the same person. They're not. In our understanding of the Trinity, we believe that there are three persons and one being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that these three persons are the one God. So we have three who's and one what. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. So to look upon Jesus, we see the Father, listen, not because they are the same person, but because they are the same God. So to behold the Son is to behold all of God that can be beheld in human flesh. So in describing the doctrine of the Trinity, we can do no better than Jesus to distinguish between the persons, but to keep the essence or the unity intact. So as one of the old creedal confessions says, we do not confound the persons, nor do we divide the substance. So we believe in three who's and one what. And we covered this back in chapter 5, but the doctrine of the Trinity is always good for review because we find ourselves falling into all types of evangelical vernacular and using phrases and illustrations that not only do not make sense, but they are actually heretical. So let's go over again just real quickly. What do we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity? Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one being. Three who's, one being. Jesus and the Father are not the same person. So we do not confound the persons. We do not blend them together. And this is the error of modalism that they actually believe the Father or God is one person who manifests himself three different ways. Sometimes he acts as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Holy Spirit, but it's one person acting in three different modes or manifestations, as it were. That is confounding the persons. We don't do that. We believe in, because Scripture teaches, three separate and distinct persons. So the Father can speak of the Son and can speak to the Son, and the Son can speak about the Father and can speak to the Father because they are not the same person though they are the same God. So we don't confound the persons, and we don't divide the essence. In other words, we don't say the Father is a third of God, and the Son is a third of God, and the Holy Spirit is a third of God, and when all three of them get together, we have all that is God. No. Just having the Son is to have all that is God, for the Son possesses all of the attributes in full of the entire Godhead. He is all that is God, and so is the Father. They share fully the same being, the same essence, though they are three separate and distinct persons. And that's exactly what Jesus is describing. If you have looked upon me, Philip, you have seen the Father, not because Jesus is the Father, but because He perfectly represents the Father. To look upon the Son, you you see everything that is the Father, and you see everything that is the Holy Spirit, because you see everything that is God. And to look upon the Father is not to see anything that you cannot see perfectly in the Son. So that we are able to say that Jesus is the perfect representation of all that is God because He is fully God. That is a claim to deity. And the New Testament explicitly teaches this. 
a hundred different ways. Let me give you a couple of passages. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory and exact representation of His, that is God's nature. He is the precise representation of the nature of God. To look upon the Son is to behold everything about God that we can behold. Everything. He left nothing out. There's no need to see the Father. For Christ has accurately represented all of the essence and substance of the Father because He is all of the essence and substance of the Father, though He is not the same person. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, In Him dwells all the fullness of Godhead in bodily form. And 2 Corinthians 4 4 says that men do not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the image of God. Colossians 1.15 says He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Philip, to look upon the Son is to see the Father. Can you see now that Philip was asking for something that was completely inferior to what he had enjoyed? An Old Testament momentary view of the Father in His glory. Not only was that impossible for Philip to take in, but Philip is asking for something that is completely inferior to what he had enjoyed, and that is living and dwelling with the God-man for three years and hearing the works of God, seeing the works of God, and hearing the words of God. What a glorious thing Peter had, uh, Philip had. And yet, he seems to think that that was not enough, that that was insufficient. Show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Philip seems to think that he's speaking on behalf of all the disciples, and I have no doubt that in some sense Philip was speaking on behalf of all the disciples, that and he asked for the, Jesus to reveal to him the Father that he is asking for that on behalf of the rest of the disciples as well. Well, there is a reproof in verse 9. It's a mild reproof, but it is a reproof nonetheless. When Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? That's a very kind and gentle way of saying, That was a very dumb question. Knowing everything that you have known, seeing everything that you have seen, how can you possibly utter these words, show us the Father and it will be enough? Philip, you have been given more than enough. You have been given adequate revelation because you've looked upon me and so you have seen the whole nature of the character of the glory of God, even the Father. Verse 10, Jesus is going to prove his argument that he is God and that looking upon him is sufficient to see the Father. Verse 10, do, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That question is intended to to, to show Philip that this was something that, to remind Philip that this was something that Jesus had been teaching them for three years. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Did Jesus not, did they not hear Jesus say that back in John 5? Had they not on multiple occasions heard Jesus express this truth that the Father is in him and he is in the Father? The words that I say to you, and there are two lines of evidence that Jesus gives, the words and the works. Verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. There are two lines of evidence that show that, that He has revealed to them everything that can be seen about the Father. The words of Christ and the works of Christ. Let's take the words. On multiple occasions throughout the Gospel, we have heard Jesus say to them that the words that He has spoken, He has spoken to them on the Father's behalf. They have heard His teaching. They've heard it. Jesus said in John 7:16, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. In John 8:28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. John 8:40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. John 12:49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. 
And in John chapter 5, what Jesus is saying when he says, I do nothing on my own initiative, he is simply saying, there is nothing that I am doing as the God-man that is in any sense a renegade action apart from the counsel and nature of the other two persons of the Trinity. I don't act on my own initiative. I'm not doing my own thing out trying to save people the Father hasn't elected, out trying to do things the Father hasn't sent me to do, out teaching my own doctrines. Everything that I have said and done comes straight from the Father. So every word that Christ spoke came from the Father. Philip heard those words. He heard them. And as he sat and listened to Jesus teach, Jesus is saying, you are hearing the words of the Father. Every word that I have spoken to you has been the words of the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You've been hearing his words for three years. Everything I've said to you is the words of the Father. And now you just want to see his glory when you've heard him teach through me for three years? What a revelation Peter had, uh, Philip had. He had heard the words of Jesus. When, when Jesus spoke, he didn't speak like other men. Jesus never taught as one who was under authority. Even his enemies confessed, no man speaks like this man. Those who went to arrest him said, we, we've never heard anybody teach like this. Yet Jesus took the words of the Old Testament upon his lips and he interpreted them infallibly and gave the essence and the nature of those words and applied them to people, not as one who was under authority, but one who was in authority. Not as one who was under those words and a recipient of them, but as one who actually spoke those words. That's why every man who heard him speak said, nobody speaks like this man. He speaks as no other man because he spoke as one who was himself speaking for God. And that is what he claimed. It's a claim to deity. Philip, you don't need to see the Father. You have heard me say the words of the Father. Every word I have spoken has been from the Father. Second, his works. The works that he did were the works that the Father had given him to do. In John chapter 5, verse 19, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. John 5:36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. In John 10, Jesus answered the unbelieving Pharisees, and he said to them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And then he asked them, for which of my good works do you stone me? And they said, not for a good work, but for claiming to be God. For that reason, we want to stone you. And Jesus said, I showed you many good works from the Father. And then he said, I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. All the works that he did. They watched him turn water into wine. They watched him heal the nobleman's son from a distance. They watched him heal a man who hadn't walked in 38 years. They watched him multiply bread and fish, walk on water, heal a man born blind, and raise Lazarus from the dead. And those are just the seven miracles listed in John's Gospel. They had seen countless healings, resurrections, powers over nature, exorcisms, all of those signs, more than they could count they had seen. And in every one of those, Jesus was demonstrating not just his own nature and character, but the very nature and character and being of the Father as well. Because he is the exact representation of all that the Father is. Without being the same person, he is the same God. Philip, how is it that you can ask, show us the Father? I've given you the words of the Father. I've shown you the works of the Father. And that should be sufficient. And now I ask you, is it sufficient for you? We see Christ with the eyes of faith. We have recorded for us in, in our scriptures the teaching of Jesus through the apostles in the New Testament. We have the, the teachings and the anticipation of Christ in all of the Old Testament. And we see the Father there, and we see Christ in the Old Testament. And then we have recorded for us infallibly and perfectly and preserved for us the words of the Son of God, which are the words of the Father as well. The words of the Son of God in the Gospels. And then we have all of His works that we need to know about 
and to learn from. We have all of those recorded infallibly for us in Scripture as well. Is it enough for you or are you to desire something more? And this is what Christ is saying to Philip. Philip, you have me. You need nothing else. According to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been loved by the Father, we have been saved by the Son, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is sufficient for us. We need nothing else. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for all that you have provided for us in your Son. Again, these things are difficult for us to fully understand because of the nature of our triune God who is revealed to us here in the words of the Son. We thank you that you have in all ways intended our salvation and brought it about by the work of you, our great triune God. And so we know that we are chosen by the Father and saved and sanctified and secured by the Son and now called and indwelt and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you for that and we pray that the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit and the grace of Christ may abide with all those who are yours and who name the name of Christ and belong to him both now and also in all of eternity. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.